when I did the chat, I got tweets at me saying, "What are you doing out of the control room?" <laughs> Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is February 18th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hello. That was a weird voice. I don't know. I'm just trying to change things up oh. in this opener. I yeah. like it. That's great. Yeah. On the line from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Good. You have a good weekend? Yeah, it was great. I mean, I was mostly just, you know, NBA All-Star weekend. I was glued. I uh, I had a full-time babysitter. I cleared the schedule. I watched every second of it. <laughs> I feel like the only part of that that might have been true is that you got a babysitter. No, no, <laughs> not that even part's that. not even true. <laughs> did you guys happen to catch the end of the Daytona 500 I did. yesterday? Well, so- you mean the Daytona 500 that got rained out on Sunday. Right. right. So, yeah. So after 20 laps on Sunday, the race was postponed because of downpours. So they restarted on Monday. There were several crashes, but the one that was the most horrific happened in the last lap. Driver Ryan Newman was racing toward the finish line for what would have been his second win at the race. When he was hit from behind by Ryan Blaney, Denny Hamlin edged past for a repeat victory. Newman's car went airborne, hit the side, flipped several times. Got hit. Was on fire. Yeah. And then skidded to a stop. It was it was terrifying. That was one of the worst wrecks I think I've ever seen and you and I are like aficionados of wrecks after doing a lot of research on like you know various auto racing um incidents over the years. But the great thing about it is that although Newman's injuries are serious, they're not life-threatening. And to be honest, when you look at a wreck like that, that's a win. Yeah, it was I mean it was scary well, the whole thing was scary. He didn't just walk away, which really lately there aren't, haven't been that many crashes that required a driver to be, you know, yeah. extricated. I mean, nowadays the technology of the cars is so much better that drivers can usually walk away from these kinds of crashes. And so that had everyone super worried at first because you couldn't really tell what was going on, whether he was going to be okay. It took They'd like put hours up the screens. Yeah. to get an update. But yeah. um, ultimately, he was okay. The wreck was uh, terrifying, and it occurs to me that I maybe don't ever want to drive again <laughs> after seeing these kinds of crashes. Certainly I'm just like, I'm good. Don't drive at I 200 don't... miles per hour well, right. uh, on Daytona Motor Speedway. <laughs> right. Let that... that be a lesson to all the yeah. listeners out there. That's something I can safely avoid, I think. On today's show, we'll look at the NBA All-Star Game and what it can tell us about the rest of the season. We'll unpack the controversy around Manchester City's ban from Champions League. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The NBA All-Star Weekend featured tributes to Kobe Bryant, a slew of rule changes, surprisingly fierce competition, and a bit of controversy. The All-Star Game, which featured a format change that concluded in a fourth-quarter sprint to 157 points, looked more like a playoff game than it did an exhibition matchup. Here's Doris Burke's reaction to the game on ESPN's first take. They fixed the All-Star Game, in my estimation. I think other leagues need to look at this. Throughout the course of the game, it elevated in terms of its competitiveness. We've spoken many times on this show about how underwhelming All-Star Games can feel. Neil, does this change to the rules seem to have fixed it, as Burke suggested in the take? 
I mean, sort of. Uh, at the end, it certainly felt very competitive. They were. Um, so I know it was a radical concept. They were actually playing defense at the end of the game, uh, and so to that extent, it did make the finish of the game interesting, hard fought. It still didn't fix the problem of player effort and defense in the early stages of the game. I mean, I, uh, I think the first quarter score was 53 to 41 in a quarter. But, uh, you know, maybe that's what we want out of an all-star game. Even before this rule change, we had seen, especially with the adoption of the player versus player draft format, that in the final few minutes, if it's close, the, the players start to you know, actually try. There's some pride on the line, certainly money for charity on the line. Uh, and, and that was true even before this new format. And I think that this year's change just made like the whole fourth quarter that way because they didn't know, you know, there wasn't a set amount of time until the game ended. It was just all about like possession for possession. This game can last as long as you want. And it lasted a long time in the sense that they were not making shots at the same right. uh, rate, anywhere near the same rate in that fourth quarter as they were uh, in like the first three quarters. I kind of liked it because it felt like, especially the first two quarters, the third quarter ended up in a tie that in that quarter. But the first two quarters felt like that, like, you know, tons of offense of the previous All-Star games. And then we got, we also got actual defense being played. So we sort of got the best of both worlds, it yeah. felt like. Does anyone actually enjoy the version of the All-Star game that we've grown so used to where they're just sort of lackadaisically walking down the court and throwing lobs to each other with no defense. I mean, what is who is that even for at this point? I mean, I think the alley-oops are fun like twice. But you can see just from the reaction from this game, this little tweak that everyone's like, oh my God, it was the best all-star game ever. We were wrong about the gimmicks. This is great. Turns out basketball is more exciting when teams are trying. What a concept. And playing defense. But, you know, how did we ever not realize this? I mean, it seems so obvious to me that we've gone through this a few times. And I, again, I'm, I'm in favor, A, of novelty and, um, you know, experimenting, using these All-Star games as a Petri dish. But the only one of the, all the All-Star games that's interesting is baseball because it's closest to the actual product. So anything you're going to do to move the NBA All-Star game closer to what we see in, well, particularly playoff basketball, is going to be better. To me, it, it seems obvious that it was a, a good move and, you know, maybe they should go even farther with this, I think. All-Star tournament, NHL style. Every yeah. every game is a race to 24 points. Uh, and it's just all the the fourth quarter. It just is the all star game. Yeah, that would be. I mean, really, we didn't really need the first three quarters, right? We just we didn't really need it. I mean, it it set up the one team ahead, <laughs> one team needing to come from behind. Which I guess you want that narrative. No, I don't think so. I think that starting them off at zero zero and then race to twenty four would even make it. You know, it's closer going in, and the players would try even harder. Yeah. And we want guys getting, you know, going all out and getting injured in a meaningless <laughs> uh, exhibition game. That's what we want, yeah. I did enjoy the tweets afterwards like, okay, do the Pro Bowl next. <laughs> like, fix the other fix the other leagues next. There's no fixing that. No, that's probably true. <laughs> so the game was set up with a tribute to Kobe Bryant as a crucial component. The target score for the end of the game was 24 points, more than the point total of the leading team after three quarters. Neil, do you think that the Kobe themes of the night played a role in the game's increased energy. I do. I mean, there's no way to really prove it, but I do feel like, uh, especially when we saw toward the end when 
a shot could have been like the game winner. We saw some guys trying some crazy shots to just be the iconic, you know, game winner to get to the to the number almost like it, it did feel like it was in the spirit of Kobe, you know, trying to take a shot. Some of them were like ridiculous heat checks by LeBron, like a foot inside half court. Right. <laughs> Maybe that was a little bit much yeah. uh, and contributed to the bad field goal percentage. And we have to talk about the fact that a free throw ended the the got the team to the to the 24 uh point target Uh, what do you guys think about that because there was a lot of controversy around that and people saying especially on the losing team (laughs) saying field goal should decide it which i agree with i i feel like it was a little anticlimactic maybe it was uh, a consequence of the harder uh defense being played because there were like actual fouls happening in the fourth quarter of this game too and guys were going to the free throw line but it was a little weird how it's like Anthony Davis makes a free throw. It's over. Like you got to win on a on a shot from the field, right? I, I'm just full of contrary takes today, but I kind of disagree. I think like there was drama. If, if what you need is drama for the last shot, you got it with his missed free throw, his first missed free throw. And then there was drama. On yeah, but how much drama one. can there be around a shot that only has at best like a 30 percent chance of missing or whatever are you trying to say that things that have a 30 percent chance okay we don't need to go there sarah (laughs) sorry you didn't have to go there there's no reason to think that would happen again i mean i mean it could happen again but it won't necessarily happen again i mean it was a little bit of just bad luck in terms of you know making it as dramatic as possible i mean couldn't they also make you win by Two? Wouldn't that solve it? Uh, I don't think that would have solved it here. They did win by two, even with the... It was 157 to 155. Win by three? What about win by three? <laughs> That's not normal. <laughs> no, but I, I you know, I, I do feel like... It's like tennis. You, the win by two mentality should be in there, even if it's not exactly two, right? Right. Sarah, that's what I meant. The win by two mentality. <laughs> that replaces the Mamba mentality for oh, next year. Boy. Or, or maybe refs just, you know, no fouls. No fouls when uh, a team is on the brink of winning. Well, I kind of agree with that, too. I, I don't disagree with that because, you know, if we're talking about playground rules, which is the spirit of the, the draft, you know, and the two captains right. getting to pick sides. In playground, like, you know, you're going to have to score a bucket from the floor to win fouls can happen you call you know you can call your own fouls but that just means you get to take it out you know uh, and and go again for another possession that there's not like free throws involved but if you want street ball rules if you want the game to mimic a real game to be closest to a real game oh we're like way past that though aren't we but that was what made it more fun right that it felt more like a real game I'm with Sarah. I'm for I'm for the free throws. You it, have it, argued. Again, you've come back well, as around. I said before, of this. As I said before, <laughs> the closer you get to real basketball, the better. So free throws are fine. I'm sorry it ended that way. Uh, I'm sorry it didn't end on some crazy, you know, lob dunk that, you know, which is really all they do at the All-Star game anyway. But it ended on an actual real basketball scenario. Well, that's what's so interesting. Like free throws are things that don't happen in the All-Star game when no fouls are being called and it's and there's no defense being played. So this part, I I felt like that was actually fine. I'm complaining about just just for the sake of complaining. All right. Good to know. And it was really interesting to see there were very few – there were substitutions sort of at the beginning of the fourth quarter and then the teams just stuck with those lineups for the rest of the game. Because you did see like Trey Young and I think Doncic, they were the starters but then they didn't play uh, in favor of like – 
more defensive-minded guys like Kyle Lowry, Kyle Lowry playing, you know, crucial uh, minutes at the and end of the game. And taking two charges, which, which is, is very on Fantastic, yeah. This kind of makes sense why Kyle Lowry was there, you know? I mean, he's not the guy who's going to, you know, wow you with acrobatic plays, but taking charges because this is new world order. This is the new all-star game where, you know, defense matters. Yeah, and I liked that aspect of it. I'm all for it. Yeah. The coaches really seem to buy in, and they took, you know, obviously, Trey Young is statistically— Take your seats, showboats. Right, exactly. Trey Young is, like, one of the worst defensive players in basketball, and so they were like, oh, man, you know, now that this, this is, like, the player we want for the first three quarters of the All-Star Game. You're a first three quarters guy. Yeah. But then now it's the fourth quarter. This is serious business. <laughs> Bring it in, Kyle Lowry. Now it counts. Now it counts. It counts. It still doesn't count. Well, so I think that the reason why they didn't make the subs— though, is because, well, once they got kind of rolling into it, it was all about, like, the competition. Uh, and those players, I think, would not have wanted to to come off under any circumstances. But also the fact that you didn't really know when the game would end or how much longer there would be in the game because of the, the weird Elam-ending scoring system. You know, and the fact that the 24 points that they added on uh, to the leading team score, by normal All-Star standards, that would have taken, like, a half a quarter at most. Uh, so I think maybe they were like, look, we don't know how long this is going to take, so let's just roll with it. And then when they started actually playing defense, they were like, well, it's too late now. We can't like make subs and pull some of these guys out on this stage. Right. Also, they were all playing really well. I mean, the yeah. shots weren't going in, but the defense was working great. So that was, yeah, it was fun. I have a suggestion. Hear me out. Since we can do whatever we want now um, with the All-Star game, what if they made the subs... Once you were subbed down, you couldn't come back in the game. So it was a little bit, I guess I'm just trying to make everything like the baseball all-star game. But (laughs) it it added a little more tactics on when you deploy certain players and when you take them out and how you construct your lineups. Think about that. That's interesting. Although... Mind blown. Would we... So that would mean like you wouldn't start the game with like LeBron. You might actually start with a weaker lineup or or a more balanced lineup. Or you might wait and see who the other team puts on the court and, you know, hockey style, try to match up certain guys. You'd stagger the stars. I like that. I try to change every aspect of this because it needs improvement. I hate the NBA All-Star Game. I'm not shy about making that point. I, I can't stand it. I find it unwatchable. So you should be in charge of changing it then. Well, maybe. <laughs> maybe me. I think, yeah. I mean, if we're borrowing from hockey, they should just make subs in the middle of the play. Okay. That's one of the many things about hockey that I don't understand at all. Anyway, the highlight of the All-Star Weekend is usually the famed dunk contest. This year's competition did not disappoint, requiring an additional two rounds of competition before Derek Jones Jr. of the Miami Heat finally claimed a single-point victory over Orlando's Aaron Gordon, despite Gordon's final round dunk over seven foot five Taco Fall. Robbery. All right, we'll get to that. There was a lot of controversy over the judge's decision. Okay, so I personally felt that Jones deserved the win in the first tiebreaker round. Jones had the dunk from the side where the ball was tossed off the side of the backboard and then went through his legs. And then Gordon did his third dunk of the night over Chance the Rapper, which was my first problem there. But it was a carbon copy of a previous dunk Jones had done over two dudes instead of just one. But I might be outnumbered here, I think. What did you guys think of the contest? First of all, I think Gordon did that just to show like, hey, you did this dunk. I can do this dunk. But I also did my other dunks were better than your dunks. And I mean, Gordon was the better dunker. 
I think, consistently throughout the contest. He did more interesting dunks. You probably disagree. And that's not what it's about. But I think the scoring system and the way the judges work are like have poisoned the contest because, first of all, they because we know who the judges are, they're able to kind of chit-chat with each other at the um, scoring table. There's a lot of collusion going on. There's collusion between like some of the judges and some of the competitors, like Derek Jones Jr. is friends with Dwayne Wade. Uh, but the fact is that you know they'll start out first round early on. Maybe they'll give like an eight. You know that's like the lowest, unless you just outright I don't know, just do like the blandest dunk possible, or just don't even get a dunk in. The lowest that they'll give you is an eight on a ten point scale. So then once we get to the end and uh, Derek Jones uh, and Aaron Gordon are doing like legitimately insane dunks that some of which we've never seen before, there's nowhere to go. Like once you've given a 10 by the final dunk of the first round, that's like the max you can possibly do. And so I think combine that with the fact that there's a lot of like peer pressure uh, and, and everybody is sort of, you know, feels hated on if they get less than an eight on a dunk from any of the judges uh, in the first round that the scoring system just gets way out of whack. And then all of a sudden we have to have like this dunk off of of consecutive 50s, uh, you know, seven consecutive 50s in the in the final round or whatever it was, uh, just to decide who wins. And, and the per, uh, you know, heaven help the person that gets a nine instead of a 10 from one of the judges and that determines who wins. I think they should be comfortable saying like, look, a five out of 10 is an average dunk contest dunk. There's no shame in a five out of 10, but give yourself more wiggle room in the judging so that a 10 really is legitimately like an all-time great dunk instead of just feeling like a perfunctory 10, you know, because it's like pretty impressive and you don't want to like make anyone mad. I feel like that's the biggest problem with the dunk contest right now. What if it was anonymous? Yeah, I think it should be anonymous too. No, I think in terms of the judging, I think no player would submit themselves to this if it meant they were going to be embarrassed and get a a low score. Then totally like you would have to radically change. So be like, look, this isn't the same as past years. You can't compare these dunks directly to previous years like anyone's doing that anyway. (laughs) I mean, maybe literally I am the only person me and Jeff would be the only people that would go onto Wikipedia and try to like compare multiple years dunk scores to each other. Yes. So I'm yes. We've literally done that. Yeah. <laughs> Our boss, Nate Silver, suggested on Twitter that every judge should get an 11 that they can use once. I and like that, too. Yeah, that's kind of fun, right? It's a little ridiculous that we have to make it go to 11 to, <laughs> to, like, to solve that. But that would be one way around it. I will say there is a video on YouTube which is uh, called Every 50 Point Dunk. And, and I started watching it the other day during a little downtime. And... And then I realized, you know, it was like a, it was like Vince Carter, Spud Webb. I was like, okay, you know, Jordan from the free throw line. I was like, all right. And then I realized the video was like 15 minutes long. And there were like 150 of these. So obviously there's a problem. There's way too many 50s. I think you're right. I think it should be like a rare thing that you you don't necessarily see every year. Or you need to somehow reset the scoring. I'm not saying they go, well, maybe they should. But, uh, you know, all figure skating and make it com- – highly you know convoluted and you have a uh execution score and a creativity score and a difficulty score and then you see the scores come up and you don't even know whether it was good or bad um but i'm saying they need to sort of reset it so that 
there is something people are aspiring to do that isn't necessarily done every year, if that makes sense. And by the way, he did not clear Taco Fall. Taco Fall bent his head down. That is my big problem with that. So what you guys are saying about the scoring, totally true. But in that last round, neither of those dunks got 50s. The judges did sort of, at least a couple of them, gave nines. I, th- I think they and were just tired so. of it. No, the, everyone was so amazed <laughs> by jumping over Taco Fall. He didn't jump over him. He jumped, he smooshed his head. You go, you don't get credit for jumping over a seven foot five guy if that seven foot five guy almost loses his head. Okay, fine. Then he should have brought out a seven two guy and then like that would have been fine. Hey. He said he tried to get Shaq to do it and Shaq declined. So Taco was his like second choice. There are a lot of tall guys on the sidelines of the NBA Is anyone All-Star here game. seven feet tall? Yeah. I mean, Giannis, so Pat Connington dunked over Giannis Antetokounmpo, who is six foot 11, who's basically seven foot, and cleared him. So that was my, that was my biggest problem there. You're right that Aaron Gordon's dunks overall were more creative. But it's not a cumulative scoring thing. Maybe, it, maybe should it should be, be, but it wasn't in the dunk contest this weekend. And so they couldn't people can't be like, well, he should have won because he had all the all the 50 point dunks early on. Well, those didn't count early on. And that's part of the thing. But if we had 11s, those would have been like a 55 point dunk sure. later yeah. on. Sure. Maybe so. Yeah. Who knows? But then you got to decide when you're going to deploy your 11s. It's a whole thing. You'll wait till the very end. I also think, you know, if we're talking about a one-time use 11, why not a like a one-time use of each dunk type or like typology in the contest? So it's like you can only jump, do the like I'm jumping over a tall guy thing like once. Yes. Or what about this, you guys? Here. Here's my ultimate fix. The type of dunk is set for a round and every dunker has to do that type of dunk. So we're comparing jump over tall dude. We're comparing windmills or, you know, rock the baby or whatever. I, I don't hate that. And then you can see it more clearly head to head what's better and who's doing it in a more creative twist or whatever. Yeah. Instead of comparing that, very different yeah. kinds of dunks. And they tried that at some point because I remember they had the wheel of dunks, which was highly <laughs> unpopular. Uh, probably because they called it the wheel of dunks and they would go out and they would spin a wheel uh, and it would have like different dunk types and whatever it landed on was what you had to do. Uh, I and, love that. And the players hated it. Uh, but maybe it's a, it was just an idea that was ahead of its time yeah, yeah, yeah. and needs to kind of come back, I feel like. So there's still a lot left of the NBA season, but it finally feels like a manageable number of games, maybe. What are we excited about looking ahead to the playoffs? Neil, what are you most excited about? Well, I'm excited to see uh, the Bucks and whether they can kind of parlay this amazing regular season into a uh, championship because – you know, I, I wrote about this a few weeks ago. They're on like a 70 win pace. They're really having like one of the all time great regular seasons, but it's happening in an era where maybe we don't care as much about regular season accomplishments. Also, they play in Milwaukee, so it's easier for them to kind of fly under the radar. So I'm just excited to see them in the playoffs and kind of. You know, when when the regular season is over, uh, if they can kind of translate it into a championship this year. Yeah, for sure. Jeff, what about you? What are you most excited about? I'm sort of interested in the Raptors, who have been really unbelievable lately and doing so without um, Leonard, but still a lot of guys who, you know, 
have won a championship. I'm interested to see if they I'm really really if, if if anyone in the East can challenge the Bucks. And certainly I think they're the most intriguing option currently. I'm also sort of interested in the Pelicans if they make the playoffs. Um I think we have them at fifty five percent now. Obviously with Zion they're a totally different team. And I think the NBA would love to have him in the playoffs just for the pure excitement value. So that's that's probably up there as well in the West. What about you, Sarah? I'm always interested to see how the model does um and and who the model likes go and, model i know i'm i'm, I'm, team, I'm team model. what a shill no no i'm interested do you have any merch you want to sell us too <laughs> i mean always 538.com slash store um no i i really i'm interested because there are a couple of teams that our model has liked more than i have liked oh, really <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Philly being one of them that um, the the model thinks very highly of and thinks the the talent is there. The way that team has fit together so far this year hasn't really worked. I'm also fascinated by the Rockets. Our model has the Rockets as the highest current rated team. And they are sort of the conventional wisdom about them right now is that, well, they, they're going so short, which as a short person, I love, but like, can they actually compete? You know, can anyone guard Anthony Davis when they play the Lakers? That really remains to be seen. And so the conventional wisdom is very down on Houston right now. And yet our model still loves them. So I'm, I'm fascinated to see how that plays out once we get into the playoffs and whether their lack of height hurts them or whether they can thrive as, as shorter people who are still six, six. So we currently have the Sixers with a better chance to make the finals than the Bucks. Is that correct? That that is correct by one percentage point. But yes, that is correct. Which is interesting. I mean, the talent Philly has a lot of talent, and they just haven't quite translated that into wins so far. So we'll see how things play out over the rest of the season. Let's pause for a quick word from this week's sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. And growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. Codable co-founder Gretchen Hebner experienced how challenging hiring can be after unsuccessfully searching for a new game artist to grow with her education tech company. But then she switched to ZipRecruiter and saw an immediate difference. And you can too by signing up for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. And by using ZipRecruiter's screening questions to filter candidates, Gretchen found it easier to focus on the best ones, then find the right one. In fact, after posting her job on ZipRecruiter, Gretchen said she was honestly surprised she found qualified applicants so quickly and hired a new game artist in less than two weeks. With results like that, it's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter Get a quality candidate within the first day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown, T-A-K-E-D-O-W-N. Over the weekend, the Union of European Football Associations, or UEFA, banned Manchester City from competing in its games, including the Champions League, for the next two years. And it assessed the soccer club a fine of 30 million euros. 
Manchester City is accused of violating UEFA's club licensing and financial fair play regulations by overstating its sponsorship revenue and break-even information from 2012 to 2016. The two-year ban from one of the world's most coveted competitions is a severe punishment for the club that has really shaped English soccer over the past decade. Here's Robbie Earl on the Two Robbies podcast with his reaction to the ban. It is massive news, Robbie. It, it's an absolute massive shock. I think UEFA have called it, an, or people are calling it, an atomic bomb. To help break this all down, we're joined by someone whose name you hear every week, but is making an on-air, on-mic debut, Tony Chow, our guy in the control room. Thanks for being here, Tony. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's so weird being on this side of the table. I'm just glad everyone can hear you. Yeah, who's manning the control room? Is it just on autopilot right now? Honestly, just really proves how little I do back there because I hit the button and then I can, <laughs> I can be here and leave. But yeah, I don't know how you guys do this every every week. This is the, the lights are bright. I know it's hot in they here. Are. Can we turn on the fan? Yeah, this is it, see, this is good. This yeah, is good for us. This is why we're doing this. These lights are yeah. <laughs> the lights are bright. It's hot. How do you do this? So let's talk about why this is such a significant moment for the sport and how this could possibly restructure your soccer. First, Neil, how exactly did Man City allegedly violate UEFA rules? To get into this, we have to rewind the clock to 2008. That was when Sheikh Mansour, a member of the Abu Dhabi royal family, bought Man City, and he started spending a lot of cash on superstar players for the team. And the way that these rules work is in order to spend more money on the team, you have to offset that by income to the team. And so the way that it seemed like it was above board was there's this uh, company, Etihad Airways, which upped its sponsorship deal with Man City to 67.5 million pounds to help pay for all the players. Well, that's within the rules if that was how it actually happened. But there were these hacked emails leaked uh, and published in the German news magazine Der Spiegel, uh, the, which I love. They had the, the subject line on the emails was, th- was something like, cash flow, which is not at all suspicious. (laughs) But basically, the emails uh, shed light on the fact that this was not really above board, that the contribution by Etihad, which, by the way, uh, is owned by the same private equity company that Sheikh Mansour also has heavy involvement with, uh, that the it was only a limited direct contribution of £8 million from the sponsorship uh, toward Man City, and that the rest of the deal sort of came out of Mansour's own pocket, or at least from the private equity fund. That's against the rules. So you can't sort of route money uh, from yourself through a sponsor and then into your club to be able to pay for players according to these financial fair play laws, you have to, you know, every dollar that you spend on players has to basically come from what they deem to be a legitimate source. But that's the root of all of this. I I do think I'm going to start subject lining all of my emails, my crimes, and see see what happens there. (laughs) Tony, what's the function of these regulations? What is UEFA trying to avoid by putting rules like these into place? I think the point of UEFA when it was first implemented was to prevent clubs from losing money. A lot of clubs at that time were just hemorrhaging a lot of money. These regulations were put in place to help kind of like stabilize the market. Opponents of FFP will say that, well, now these rules are kind of keeping the rich clubs rich and the poor clubs poor and preventing upward mobility of clubs so that you have these super teams and you're not allowing other clubs to like get richer if you're 
capping how much they're able to spend based on the revenue. And is it kind of a case of trying to save teams from themselves almost by having this in place and forcing them to spend within their means? It's like a, a natural cap on how much money that that everyone spends on players? Exactly. It's, so if you have really, really wealthy owners, it's trying to prevent owners from putting how much money they want into the clubs. So yeah, in a way it is to like make sure that clubs spend within their means and kind of protect them from themselves. Well, it's kind of like the... like old money versus new money thing like the teams that have always been rich are big names and they're going to attract star players no matter what and so then these up-and-coming teams are going to have a harder time if they can't offer the big contracts exactly it's like keeping the upper crust the upper crust right yeah how do you have the means to spend more on players if you don't have good players right is there a comparison to this that we can draw in other sports like a luxury tax sort of thing It does seem sort of like the salary caps and stuff that we have in the U.S. where it's also designed to kind of keep rich owners from just, you know, outspending everyone. And um, even baseball, where there's no salary cap per se, has a luxury tax. And we saw it with the – we talked about the Mookie Betts trade of the Red Sox, you know, feeling compelled at least – somewhat financially to to trade away a great player rather than spend more to keep him. So it's these are all mechanisms it seems like to in some ways depress player salaries uh in a lot of ways or at least you know instead of letting the market spiral ever upward for for players and have teams get into like bidding wars and end up spending a tremendous amount there's like this you know built-in mechanism to govern how much and be like whoa there you're spending a little too much on these guys, you know, may- maybe you want to rein it in a little bit. It feels stricter than the luxury tax, though, because with the amount of wealth we're talking from some of these owners, if it was just like a luxury tax situation, they'd be like, I don't mind paying that luxury. Like, right. <laughs> what, $30 million that they put on Man City is really nothing. It's like the two-year ban from Champions League that— um, Which could cost them $300 which, million. Right, right. Yeah. That, like, maybe is a problem. But even then, if it was a luxury tax, I don't think they would mind paying a luxury tax. The difference is like whereas the um, salary cap or luxury tax is done in the name of parity, this is kind of done in the name of status quo where you essentially are protecting the old guard from having some new team with, you know, and I think there's something pretty xenophobic about it, having foreign money come in and just buy themselves into relevance and instead – the old established brands that have already making a ton of money will stay on top. So it's a little bit different. There is this notion that if you're, you know, trying to make a splash in the, in the English league or any of these leagues, you're not going to be able to do it quickly. And what we saw in the last, this century is that Man City did it quickly. So it, in some ways, it probably could have been expected. Well, and it's interesting that Man City's defense is, all of our opponents are coming after us because we're good, which, yeah, kind of, right? I mean, like, that's a, a valid argument. You can see why they think that. And the people who have been most outspoken about how Man City has built its team are the teams that they are beating for Premier League titles. So you can understand where they're coming from. So Man City says it will appeal the ruling to the International Court of Arbitration for Sport, which I love, as quickly as possible. Jeff, how could that play out? Could play out for a long time. They're going to obviously fight this with all the money at stake and, and wanting to keep their coach and keep their star players. Essentially, it's a problem because no, no one's going to want to go or stay on a team that, especially in this elite level, is not going to be in the Champions League for two years. So I think they're going to fight it with everything they have. And, um, you know, they, there was one report that they said they have evidence 
that Juventus and PSG have done the same thing, and it could get really ugly. It's not like UEFA is some beacon of um, you know good practice, so it it'll probably get complicated. And I think ultimately, I think they'll probably probably get knocked down to one year. But who knows? I think it'll get tied up in the courts for a while. And they have a, they have a lot. There's no restrictions on how much they can spend on lawyers, as far as I can tell. So I think they certainly have more money than UEFA. It's gonna get like messy 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 and it's gonna be it's gonna go on for a long time like jeff said i have a hard time seeing them like get rid of the ban completely maybe one year but they're gonna fight this very very hard and rumors are they have a docket not just of juventus and psg but like a docket of other teams that have violated ffp and they're not afraid to kind of share it with uefa sure and i can understand why uefa wouldn't want that but like does that actually help man city's case i mean can you get away with saying other teams violated it too. Is that a good enough defense? I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. They are trying to put UEFA in a situation where, oh, okay, you're going to really go ahead and ban this team and that team and all these, you know, very popular teams. I mean, obviously, you know, it wouldn't play out like that. But I think technically, if they establish that, you know, these other teams need to come and review, you know, they could give UEFA cold feet in theory, I guess, about of really going down this road. The other interesting part of this to me is that if UEFA loses this. If Manchester City is able to fight it successfully, there's no way they'll ever be able to enforce any financial restrictions, right? I mean, this case is sort of the bellwether for whether UEFA can run these hugely profitable teams within their rules. For sure. like, And it kind of felt like that when the news broke on like last Thursday or Friday. I think we were sharing it in like all our sports and soccer channels and Slack because like, oh my God, what is going to happen now? Nobody knows. Because it's Man City, because of their history, you know that they're going to fight this tooth and nail. And they apparently have irrefutable evidence that they are all within the rights of what are under financial fair play. So... It is like a bellwether because we're not sure what's going to happen going forward now. And was this kind of like a house of cards that was bound to fall eventually because of the way that the, these teams operate and also the fact they're doing it across like multiple different countries and, you know, ha- having to kind of work it out uh, on such a grand scale? It, it seemed like something like this was inevitable. Yeah, I think every year you you hear these murmurings of like, how are they signing these players? But the the weird thing is for Man City in this case, it was actually the the period that they're talking about between what 2012 and 2016. Mm-hmm. It was before when they signed those like 50 million dollar fullbacks. It was before those like humongous signings. So every year though, you heard these murmurings of like, wait, how are they doing this? What is how is PSG doing this? So yeah, it was eventually going to happen. This was some club was going to get hit with this, and not just like a transfer ban for one or two seasons. This is like an unheard of ban for two years. Well, and and PSG and and Man City had already been fined. Then these hacked emails came out and this whole other trove of information that is all bringing it back up. So it does kind of seem like it's not going to, it's not going to just go away. Also, really protect your two-step verification, guys. Like, let's really protect your emails. (laughs) So it's also possible that the Premier League could punish City. The league doesn't have the same fair play rules as UEFA, but it does have its own requirements for authentic financial records. So they could see, you know, maybe a points penalty or something like that. Or titles being rescinded. Like, again, whole wild, wild world. We have no idea what's going to happen. But yeah, point deduction, titles rescinded. Who knows? But more interestingly, this year, like what happens with them being eliminated next year is where... I think every fan has like new hope. For I know team. we had just 
a nothing race. The the unless you're a Liverpool fan, like this Premier League was not super interesting. And now all of a sudden there are like six teams vying for two spots in the Champions League if all of this holds up. And it's suddenly suddenly very exciting, right? Yeah. And I think it is like Jeff said, I would I have a hard time seeing both years being if when they appeal. So no matter what, I think next season you're not going to see Man City in the Champions League. So that fifth spot in the Premier League is a Champions League spot for everybody. Sheffield United. Yeah, yeah. a bunch a, of teams are a in story. Play. Manchester United had had like a 7% chance to make Champions League. Then this news plus them beating Chelsea and suddenly they're 35% to make it. It's a, it's a whole new world today. Yeah, we were talking for a while how to even like have this reflected in our model. Yeah. Because we had Man City basically qualify for Champions League. Right. They had the second spot pretty much sewn up. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's not hard to see uh, the parallels between this and our friends, the Houston Astros. I know maybe we were trying to make it through a whole show without <laughs> talking about the Astros, but... But we can't. <laughs> I do think it's interesting that uh, two, you know, major sports are kind of going through uh, a scandal like this at the same time and kind of having it play out. And it, the juxtaposition of seeing City, at least initially, like you said, Tony, I mean, they'll probably negotiate it down or, you know, appeal it down. But the two-year ban on the Champions League... And then for the Astros, kind of nothing. You know, Rob Manfred uh, tried to kind of go on and, and justify over the weekend um, the the lack of penalties um, to specific players and certainly to the to the Astros uh, in the past. But I, it kind of brought it into stark contrast. Where, like, why wouldn't you if you were uh, Major League Baseball? Why not ban the Astros from the postseason at least for this season, or you know, for two years if you're uh, you know drawing a comparison with the the Champions League? I'm guessing that they promised the players a certain amount of non punishment to get them to talk about yeah they, they, what was they going granted on. them personal immunity, but I'm guessing that they also said, and this won't affect your team going forward. That's gonna, just terrible. I mean, I don't <laughs> I mean, know that, that was, for yeah, sure, no, I know. If that was but, part of it, but, man. But why? if you're a player, why would you talk if you thought the team you're going to be on, there's no way for you to not be on that team, doesn't get to compete. I think And that's a little similar to, to, the, talk. to the questions uh, now around Man City of, you know, who's going to want to stay uh, with them, you know, and, and if you can get out of there and and go to a team that could go to the Champions League, you would now at this point. Well, and some players have part of their compensation tied to playing in Champions League. So they are totally screwed, which is obviously a huge bummer for them. Again, they didn't do anything wrong, which is sort of the difference between But a lot this. of the Astros that are right. still on that team right. did. But, so you can't really fault the Man City players. They did not do this. They just signed the contracts they were offered, like, of course. That well, now little, before you sign with the team, you're like, um, can I see your paperwork I'm, for the financial fair play that, rules? You know, that's maybe not a bad idea, right? You know, if you want to protect your future there. Uh, it'll be fascinating to see how this plays out and to see how long the appeal takes. It could last longer so that Man City does get to play next season um, if the appeal is still kind of dragging on. So, uh, yeah, this summer will be an interesting one for all these appeals. So would that extend, like, 
if they were able to appeal it, but then they upheld the two-year ban, would it extend like potentially like three or four years from now? Like they would be banned. Yeah, it would just hit whenever they have that final decision. The same things happen with the transfer bans. When you appeal, you can continue getting transfers until that ban hits. Yeah. So we'll have to see the summer. So if you're a, a Premier League team who is suddenly in contention, maybe try to get the third spot instead of uh, focusing all your efforts on that fourth spot. Thanks, Tony, for talking to us about soccer. Thanks. We'll have you back out of the control room and back in the in the studio soon. Yeah, I just have to go back and make sure it's recording. <laughs> At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week's rabbit hole comes to us from a listener, Bill Sprague, who noticed a fun fact about the 100 years of the NFL. Every decade of the league's history, with an asterisk on the 1920s, its first decade, we'll get to that, every decade featured a team that won at least three championships in that decade. The most recent of those teams was, of course, the New England Patriots, who won three Super Bowls each in the 2010s and 2000s. Before them, the Dallas Cowboys won three in the 1990s, the San Francisco Giants won four in the 80s, and the Pittsburgh Steelers won four in the 70s. In the 1960s, straddling the pre- and post-Super Bowl eras, were the Green Bay Packers, who won five total titles that decade, which, frankly, a little excessive. They could have shared a little bit. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, the, no anti-Packer bias coming from you, Sarah. <laughs> None whatsoever. Actually, I realized before uh, my dad and grandpa were huge uh, Vikings fans and then Bears fans before that. So the, my hatred of the Packers is a long time coming. No wonder they hated them. Five titles in the 60s. That's too much. There were way fewer teams at that time before the merger, so dynasties were a little easier to come by. In 1966, the last season before the Super Bowl, the NFL had just expanded to just 15 teams. In the 50s, when there were either 12 or 13 teams, depending on the season, the Cleveland Browns and Detroit Tigers each won three titles. The Bears were league champions four times in the 40s and the Packers four times in the 30s. Now, I said there was an asterisk on the decade of the 1920s. So the Canton Bulldogs were champions of the NFL in 1922 and 1923. In 1924, the owner of the Cleveland Indians NFL franchise bought the Canton Bulldogs and merged the two teams. And that team, the Cleveland Bulldogs, was the league champion that year. That team included some of the players of the previous two Canton seasons, but it also had the Canton head coach as its head coach. So you can kind of count that they were at least part of the team that won the third in that decade. You gotta love those weird, like, early pro sports franchise continuities where, like, one guy would own two teams and transfer, like, every player from the, the unfavored one to the favored one. You know, that just seemed like it happened all the time back then. Yeah. The early days of the NFL were the Wild West. Teams were popping up and, and going away like that. It was constant. Go Tonawanda Carter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we <laughs> obviously always want to talk about that. Our listener, Bill, was curious about the characteristics of dynasties that might help us predict the dynasty of the 2020s. Now, the Chiefs' recent win counts toward the 2010s since they're the champions of the 2019 season, though, of course, they could just win three more in the 2020s and have their own dynasty. 
So the obvious element in dynasties is the coach-quarterback pairings. That's probably what you think about the most. But that might just be because Bill Belichick and Tom Brady have been together so long and are, you know, kind of at the forefront of what we think about what makes a team successful. The Cowboys in the 1990s won three Super Bowls with the same quarterback, Troy Aikman, but with two different coaches, famously, in Jimmy Johnson and Barry Switzer. Same with the Niners of the 1980s. Same quarterback in Joe Montana, two different coaches when Bill Walsh was succeeded by George Seifert. In the 1970s, the Steelers featured Chuck Knoll as head coach and Terry Bradshaw as quarterback. But Bradshaw wasn't the only quarterback to see significant starts during the Steelers' title run. Bradshaw had been the primary starter in 1973, the season before their first Super Bowl win. But he was benched to start 1974 in favor of Joe Gilliam. Bradshaw won the starting job back halfway through the season, but then he was benched again a few games later. He won the job back one more time, and then he managed to hold on to it that time and route to the Super Bowl. So maybe a little upheaval isn't the worst thing for an NFL dynasty. Maybe it's the way you weather the storms of a season that kind of sets you apart. I'm wondering if that gives hope to all the quarterbacks that were like replaced in the middle of the season or, you know, we had a lot of injuries this season in the NFL, too. So maybe that's just the stepping stone, obviously, to uh, becoming a Super Bowl winner in the future and a dynasty. Right. You don't even need to start the season as the starting quarterback. You can, you know, just come in halfway through and take over and still and still get that dynasty off the ground. So I want to dig in a little deeper into how to predict a dynasty. So if I find anything else interesting there, I'll report back. But I did find it very funny that we think of, you know, Brady, Belichick together, and that's how you build a team. But that's not the only way. Well, so if if we put it to a, uh, a bet right now, who do you guys think will win three Super Bowls in the next decade? Ooh. Just to put you on the spot. <laughs> not counting Sam Darnold and the Jets, right? Because that's too obvious. <laughs> Yes, Darnold and the Jets are too obvious. Based on what you just said, Sarah, it's possible. It's a good point, Jeff, that there is maybe a chance for the Jets. They've had some upheaval, but seem to be calming down. You don't want that. Please. False hope. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I don't know. It's hard to predict. I mean, it, how long is Andy Reid going to coach the Chiefs? I mean, if, if I would, I know this is the boring answer, but if he's there for a while and Mahomes is there for a while, that's probably the obvious choice. I mean, I would say the other quarterbacks who fit that mold in terms of potential, like Deshaun Watson. I mean, I don't think Bill O'Brien. I would say not widely thought of as a great coach or a brilliant coach. If anything, he's kind of been criticized for holding Watson back. So it, it it probably could be one of these, you know, young guys coming in right now in terms of their career aligning with this upcoming decade. Yeah, I mean, I'm tempted to take the Ravens just because of how great Lamar Jackson is. I do wonder if teams will figure him out a little bit and, you know, and be able to stop him some. But you kind of like the mix of stuff going on with the Ravens and the young quarterback. You know, a lot of the teams that were good last year had pretty old quarterbacks. I mean, Drew Brees is getting close to retirement anyway. And so it's hard to, you know, predict a dynasty for the Saints at this point going forward. You know, the Niners, you'd like their quarterback to be better, but maybe Jimmy G is just about to show us many exciting things. <laughs> yeah, he could be. I mean, you know, he's more of a Bradshaw type. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, right. Yeah. Can that work? Relatively late, late bloomer. Yeah. I'm with you on that, though, that like, okay, the Chiefs are a good impulse because of Mahomes, but 
Andy Reid is 61. You know, you don't know how much longer uh, he'll coach. But Belichick is is approaching 70, you know. So uh, it, it, he could be around at least uh, long enough to win three Super Bowls in the first half of the next decade. I like the, the impulse with the Ravens, though, because John Harbaugh, younger than Andy Reid and Lamar Jackson, really the only um, question mark there, yeah, is, is the unique playing style and whether that will kind of translate to the long term. I also have my eye on why not the Eagles? Well, you know, they have a, uh, a, a relatively spring chicken of a coach compared with um, Andy Reid. You know, with Doug Peterson, he's 52. It's kind of the prime time to be a coach and, and still have Carson Wentz if he can stay healthy, you know. So we got options in the next decade. The Eagles happen. are a fun one to like overcome the adversity of the past couple of seasons. That, that, that would be a good storyline. And really, isn't the NFL all about storylines? It is. Oh, and what about what you talked about the Saints, but what about that young hotshot Taysom Hill? Who <laughs> that is young 30 year old? Well, so you've got the Eagles. Sure, why not? I've got the Ravens. Jeff's got the, the Chiefs. Nice. All right. Well, we'll check back in 10 years. See how that went. All right. That will do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It helps other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcasts at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is a participant and in the control room. He's this back week. in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Tony, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. <laughs>